Welcome to the JMD podcast with me, your host, James Nurse, the social media editor at the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease. In fortnightly episodes, I invite one or more of our wonderful authors to join me and explain their recent research, what it showed and what it might mean for the community of scientists, clinicians and families embraced by the disease in question. I've been doing this for two years now, so if you trawl through our back catalogue, there must be something of interest to you. But don't look until you've listened to this latest episode on future therapies in galactosemia. Now, I like talking about galactosemia, and it seems that you like hearing about it too. So today we're discussing two papers on the topic, and they are Neonatal GALT Gene Therapy Offers Metabolic and Phenotypic Correction Through Early Adulthood in a Rat Model of Classic Galactosemia, and Novel MRNA Therapy Restores GALT Protein and Enzyme Activity in a Zebrafish Model of Classic Galactosemia. And for two papers, we need two guests. I'm delighted to welcome back Professor Judith Fridovich Kyle, who has appeared in one podcast and one shortcast, our brief monologue podcast with company JMD Reports, and is really the most incredible advocate for research into galactosemia. And alongside Judy, I have a newcomer to the podcast, Professor Estela Rubio Gonzalbo of Maastricht University Medical Center, who I think is going to have a similar star quality. Judy, welcome back. And Estela, welcome. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Thank you. You're, you're both experts in galactosemia. Do you know each other? Yes, yes we, we do. do. <laughs> we do. It's a, it's a small research community, so I think you would be hard-pressed to find someone who has worked in galactosemia for a number of years who doesn't know the other members of the community. So that, that's one of the nice things about it is we, we do know each other. Thank you both for sort of agreeing to speak to me at the same time, obviously on two very different papers, but looking to achieve the same sort of goal. Given the different models used here, I have to ask, what influences the decision-making about one animal model versus another? Why use rat pups versus zebrafish? Is one better or are they just different? They are just different. A useful animal model must be similar in its pathology to disease conditions. For instance, the zebrafish recapitulates their fertility problems very well. And for us, that makes it a attractive model to study, for instance, fertility issues. So I think that depending on the question you're trying to ask and the method you're hoping to use, that really helps to drive your choice of model system. And when I was a graduate student, everything I did was tissue culture. I was, I lived in a hood. Okay? I was <laughs> tissue culture all the time. And then when I became a faculty member and wanted to start working on galactosemia, I wanted a very simple, inexpensive model system, and I switched to yeast, to Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and did a lot of yeast work, and then eventually realized that we were learning a lot about the mechanisms and what was happening on a single cell basis, but we really needed a multicellular organism. And so I took kind of one step up from that, and we, we moved to Drosophila. And then we did a lot of work on Drosophila, at which point I realized that the pathophysiology was going to be a whole lot more complicated than I had ever realized and thought, oh my God, I got to get closer to a human. <laughs> and so at the time, I have a colleague named Nancy Leslie who had made a, a knockout mouse and heard lots and lots about her challenges with the mouse. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to make another mouse. Let me go one step up from mouse. And so we made a rat. <laughs> so if you are trying to mimic as closely as possible humans, you know, when we say a model system, well, we're trying to model human, then I figured I want to get as close to that as I can get. I'm not wealthy enough to do this in 
non-human primates, so I'm going to use a rat. Okay? But I think when you're trying to ask basic science questions, a rat might not be the best option. Zebrafish, although I have never personally worked with them in the lab, I have colleagues who do, and they have many advantages. You can watch what happens from the single cell fertilized egg early in development, whereas in a rat, that's happening in the uterus, and you don't you don't get to see that unless you euthanize the rat. You know, so people who want to do drug screening on processes that involve early embryogenesis often use zebrafish again because they're small, they're cheap, they're see-through. Like you can see what is going on inside that little guy, and you can even set them up in a 96 well plate and do drug screens. So depending on what you're trying to do should drive what model you use. And I, I think what Estella said is right. They're, they're just different. And depending on what you're trying to do is what should drive your choice of model. And aside from that fertility phenotype, just coming back to the zebrafish, because they're a bit of a novelty for me. Um, within the paper, you talk about these sort of biochemical and clinical similarities. How, how fish-like can humans be? I feel like Judy's saying we're a bit like rats, which is... <laughs> Some uh, people funny. I know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... How fishy are we? So the, the, there is a 70% gene homology between the zebra fish and human. I, I think it's extraordinary <laughs> that we have 70% similarity with fish. But what's more important, I think, for the galactosemia is that if you look at the folliculogenesis process, it's very well conserved in vertebrates. So that makes that it can be studied in the zebra fish pretty well to a certain extent. So that makes it a good model for that. Um, yeah. So in reproduction, we are very fishy. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I'm, I'm just going to use that in the podcast trailer. Um, <laughs> so, I, mean, I, I mean, I don't want to be pitching all my favorite galactosemia guests against one another, but when we're talking about disease models, I spoke uh, with Megan Brophy a, a, about her work and, and and she was doing AAV gene therapy, but they were looking at human fibroblast cells. So where do they sit in this disease model pecking order? Okay, so... You know, the benefit is they're human cells. They're not rat or zebrafish cells. The downside is they're fibroblasts. And from everything we've learned, classic lactosemia seems to be complex not only in what it does to individual cells, but that different tissues may have a slightly different pathophysiology. They may accumulate different metabolites or in different ratios. And so looking at fibroblasts, I think, is looking at one small part of a big system and again, you know, speaking as someone who spent my entire graduate student career working with tissue culture cells, I think they are very useful for some things and they are very challenging for, for other things. So I was not studying galactosemia as a graduate student. I was studying cytoskeleton and then as a postdoc cell cycle regulated gene expression. So I've, I've done different kinds of things. And I know that when I culture cells, what I see is very dependent on how confluent were they, like even changing the lot of calf serum that you use to make up the medium can drastically alter what you see going on in the cells. So all of these systems are models. None of them are going to exactly recapitulate what we see going on in human. And so I think they're useful and we just need to 
be mindful and not get too caught up in thinking, oh my God, what I see going on in my model is telling me exactly what's going on in brain cells or liver cells or whole humans, because none of these models are going to be perfect. We, we need to learn from all of them. Yeah. And I mean, they are complementary, all these levels of investigations, but particularly in cell cultures, you could want to test the hypothesis that you have built in a whole organism. Uh, so that, that will always be something that, that we will need to do. Don't you think, Judy? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of why I left yeast, yeah. is that I realized they don't have brains. They don't have livers. <laughs> they know. Yeah. Those were some kind of important limitations. But again, depending on the question you're trying to ask, tissue culture can be very powerful. So I think you just need to be very careful to match your model and your questions so that you don't overinterpret or underinterpret. Well, I think that makes it all very clear. Thank you. So, um, if, Estelle, if I could come to your paper, the other big novelty is the use of mRNA. And this is actually the first time we've covered this technology in any of the podcasts. So I'm going to have to own up to not knowing about how this works. I've heard about it in vaccines. Who hasn't now? But could you possibly explain how this differs from the viral vector gene therapy approach? I'll try. <laughs> okay. So um, in the non-disease situation, the gene encodes the specific protein through messenger RNA, which contains the instructions for the protein synthesis. Messenger RNA travels to the protein factory in the cell and the specific protein is synthesized. And for the disease situations, whereas gene therapy aims to restore the gene abnormality so that the proper messenger RNA is available, the messenger RNA aims to deliver the proper message to the cells. So they are two different approaches with the same goal to restore the deficient protein in this case. What we've seen in the last year with people having mRNA vaccines is that you're having to be boosted on a fairly regular basis. With gene therapy is in theory a, a lifelong cure, although I think that's something we're going to perhaps ask Judy a little bit about in a second. We'll talk about that, yeah. Would we have any sense of how regularly one would need to administer an mRNA treatment? Well, we, we need to repeat the injections, that's for sure. mRNA is degraded and has a longevity which is limited. So you will always be dependent on repeating the injections. The timing intervals, that's something to be addressed and will depend on different things. But it's something that needs to be repeated. Yeah. I'm sorry. So I just wanted to interject um, a partial answer or some insight. So Kent Fly's group did mRNA administration to gold null mice and showed that it, it expresses gold protein and, and it is metabolically effective. And so they were using whole animals, you know, following them out. I forgot exactly what their time course was, but they basically were boosting. I think they, I think they boosted something like four times. I'll have to go back and look at the papers. But the, the bottom line is they definitely had to repeat the administration and half-life was measured, I think, in days. It, it, was, it was pretty short. 
So it, it might be short-lived. I think we'll have to just wait and, and find out more in time, I suppose. But within your study, there are two parts. You've got this injection less than an hour post-fertilisation and another group with mRNA administration over two days post-fertilisation. As Judy's pointed out, you can see this all happening in front of you as these eggs grow. Um, I wonder if you could briefly explain what you were doing within your study. Well, when we began this study, we were used at our facility to work with uh, one cell stage injections. And so that's what we did. And we saw that there was expression of the protein and that it was a functional protein. But then it dawned on us that by doing so, we were dependent on cell division. And then we thought to align more with a possible clinical situation, we should be injecting intravenously or systemically. But at that time, we didn't have this kind of injection. So we developed this new method of injecting. And then to be able to do so, you have to inject in the heart. But the heart is there at 48 hours and not before. So that's why we, we needed to wait between 48 and 65 hours to do the systemic injections, injecting into the heart. And then we saw the same results, luckily. But that's closer to the situation that you would want to have for a potential treatment. Presumably with a very, very small needle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they are very small. Um, yeah. Well, I suppose the question everyone wants to know is, does it work? It depends on how we define that, but this was a proof of concept study. So what worked was that we were able to restore the functional protein in the Galactosemia zebrafish. And that's all that we can say. Well, like you say, it's a good start. Though. The, uh, the longest journey begins with a single step. So uh, <laughs> you've taken that first step. It's, it certainly sounds very exciting. And I love the visual abstract that your lead author, Britt Delnoy, made for the journal. It's, uh, I particularly enjoy her sort of man-stroke-fish hybrid that's illustrating that fishy fertilization that you <laughs> talked about. Um, but I wanted to jump back across to Judy's paper, because whilst we've just been talking about time in terms of hours and days, Judy, this is all about longevity or the, the length of time that one can affect change with gene therapy. Something that you've discussed in the introduction paper is disease amelioration over time within, I think, human galactosemia patients, if I don't misunderstand. So I wonder if you could just briefly elaborate on what you mean by this. Sure. So I, I want to be careful and, and not use my words uh, incorrectly here. So the question we were really trying to ask was, if we give an injection, basically in the neonatal period, how long will the correction last? But also, how long does it need to last? Do you need to have fully restored GALT in adulthood? Or is there a, a critical window early in life when it might actually be more important? And what we know from many other people's work over many, many decades is that in humans, we produce what's called endogenously produced galactose. So people can be exposed to galactose because they take it in their diet. And for people with galactosemia, we try to limit that. But every cell in your body can also make galactose. And it's really important that it can. If, if you couldn't make galactose, I think none of us would be here because galactose is a really important component of 
post-translational modification. And basically, our cells need galactose as one of the building blocks for making all of the macromolecules that are needed for life. So your cells know how to make it. But what we know from the work of others is that babies and young children actually do more endogenous production than adults. So that's one reality. Um, and then the other reality is that if you look at galactose metabolites, and I think in different clinics, some tend to look at red blood cell GAL1P and others tend to look at, at urine galactitol and some look at both. But the bottom line is pick your favorite galactose metabolite. And if you follow it in young children, who are on a carefully galactose-restricted diet, and you also look at adults who are on a galactose-restricted diet, what you see is that the GAL1Ps tend to slowly, they're lower in the adults than they are in the children, even though the children are not cheating on the diet. If anything, children seem to have a more restrictive diet, and by the time people become teens or adults, some of them start becoming a little more lenient with their diets. So that suggests that both the body is producing less galactose in adulthood and that the body may be able to handle galactose better in adulthood. And we had noticed all these same things in rats that look at untreated galtinol rats over time, and we would see that their GAL1Ps were coming down, even though their diet was exactly the same. And one of the nice things about a rat is it can't run out and grab a slice of pizza. That rat is eating what you put in, in the food hopper. And so we had hypothesized that, so there's a bypass pathway for galactose metabolism that involves a different enzyme. It's called UGP. And the normal job of UGP is to take UTP, and glucose 1-phosphate and make UDP glucose. And UDP glucose is important for many things. For instance, in the liver, it is the substrate for making glycogen. So your liver has a ton of this enzyme UGP. And many of your other cells also need to be able to produce UDP glucose for glycogen or other things. And so we hypothesized, well, I wonder if UGP is somehow more active, either because expression goes up or for some other reason, is it more active per milligram of liver, for instance, or brain? And, and so we tested that in the rats. And the answer is, yeah, it went up about threefold. So again, part of what we were asking in the longevity question is, if you give them an injection of a viral vector that is non-replicating and predominantly non-integrating, so it's going to get diluted out over time as those cells divide, how long is it going to last? And then how long does it need to last? Okay, so th those were kind of the two questions we were trying to ask. And if I can jump ahead to the question I, I think <laughs> you're going you're gonna to hit me with next, which is in the rats, we only took the study out to 60 days. So they're not quite as big as they're going to be when they're 10 months old, but they are adults at 60 days. And what we saw is that, especially if we kept the rats on a galactose-restricted diet, the treatment was still quite effective at lowering their metabolites in all the tissues that we tested. So are we saying, if this is a model for human, that we should be looking at it by 60 days? And I'm, I'm kicking myself for not having explained this better in the paper because I, I really should have. So the main reason that the transgene, the GALT, that is being expressed by the viral vector, the reason that the level goes down over time is that you injected it and you got it into however many cells in the liver you got it into. And then each of those cells goes through rounds of division. If the virus is not replicating, it's getting diluted out 
let's just pretend you hit one cell. Well, you've probably got multiple copies into that one cell. So it divides and each of the daughter cells gets some of the copies and then they divide. And you can see that after many rounds of division, you're going to end up with a bunch of cells that they didn't get any. And so then if you measure how much GALT activity is there in 100 milligrams of liver, well, a lot of the cells don't have the virus anymore because they are younger and came about after it had already been diluted. So I don't actually know exactly how rounds of mitosis in rat liver versus human liver compare. I'm guessing there's some similarities and some differences, but the simplest way of looking at this is to say, how much did they grow? Okay, so increase in mass is a very crude proxy for how many cell divisions were there. It's not perfect by any means, but it's better than nothing. So, that, so that's what I'm doing here. And the weight gain of the whole individual is not exactly mirroring the growth of their liver. But again, I'm going to make that very simplifying assumption. So if you look at a rat, the rats that we injected were about maybe seven grams. By the time they are an adult, they're, I don't know, maybe 250 grams. Again, it depends male or female, and some rats are bigger than others. But that is an increase of maybe 35-fold. I, I did the math. <laughs> okay, it was about 35-fold. If we look in humans, I'll use, I'll use my son as an example. He weighed about 10 pounds at birth, and by the time he was 18, an adult, he weighed about 180 pounds. So that is a, a, about an 18-fold increase. So the 18 years that it took one of my two favorite humans to go from you know, a neonate to an adult was only an increase of about 18-fold, whereas in a rat, it would have been about 35-fold. So I think that the amount, what we should be asking is like not how much has the clock ticked, but how many cell divisions, how much growth has there been? And, and the answer is, I think, watching the rat go from a neonate to an adult there's actually way more growth and way more cell division and diluting out than we would see in the comparable developmental periods for a human. I don't know if that made sense, but that's <laughs> the way I look at it. No, it does. I mean, I was going to put that in a European context because I like to think of myself as still European. So a three and a half kilo baby to a 70 kilo adult, a 20 fold increase. So that would be like you say, much less than a rat. And I was going to ask how how does a rat year compare to a human year? But I think you've answered that question really well. You mentioned that you have you still have the rats on a restricted diet though, so they're not on they're not on a free diet. Or did I mishear that? No. Okay. So we we did both. So we buy rat chow. Okay. And one version of the rat chow that is what we call the normal food provides about 1% of calories from galactose. And a good way to look at galactose content is as a percentage of calories because, well, if I were a dietitian, I could explain it much better. But my dietitian friends have explained to me that you don't want to do it as like a percentage of the weight of the diet. You do it as a percentage of the calories. So that's what I do now. So when they are nursing, rat breast milk has about 3% of calories from galactose, which is actually much less than in human. In humans, it's about 19%. In cows, it's about 15%. So rat breast milk is very high in protein and high on fat and lower on carbohydrate. And human and cow breast milk is actually higher on carb and lower on fat and protein. I don't know why, okay? but it is. So when our rats are nursing, they're getting about 3% of their calories from galactose. When we wean them, which happens at about three weeks of age, um, we can either wean them to the diet that is 
about 1% of calories from galactose. And to put that in context, that would be like a person who's eating about a 2,000 calorie a day diet, drinking a cup of milk a day. So that is certainly not the galactosemia diet, okay? However, in this paper, the second group of rats, we actually weaned to a diet that maintained the same galactose content as if they were still breastfeeding. So obviously they're now eating chow, but we we know about how much water they drink and about how much chow they eat in a typical day. And so we were able to spike a little bit of galactose into their water so that between their water and their chow, they were now getting about 3% of calories from galactose. Um, and so what we wanted to ask was if when we see metabolites in older rats going down before we couldn't uncouple, is that because, well, you weaned them. So they're on a lower dietary galactose than they were when they were pups, or is that because their bodies are maturing and they're now better able to handle the galactose, even if it's at the same level that it was when they were pups. So that's why we picked those two galactose contents. So none of the rats that we did in this particular study were on a comparable diet to what a patient would be on. They all had way more galactose than a human being with galactosemia would typically have. And the, the, the bottom line is that the metabolic correction we saw was in the 60-day-old rats, if they were on the 3% dietary calories from galactose, the correction was starting to look not so good. But if we looked in the rats that were on the 1% calories from galactose, the metabolic correction still looked really good. So what that means is that the GALT replacement is starting to wane by the time they're 60 days old. And if you hit them with a truckload of galactose, you can still overwhelm them. But if you hit them with only, you know, not a truckload, but a small wagon of galactose, again, the equivalent approximately of a person drinking about a cup of milk a day as part of a 2000 calorie a day diet, then the level of correction that is still present in the adults is sufficient to keep their metabolite levels much lower. So what that means is that when they're really young and the virus hasn't been diluted out yet, oh, they can handle, you know, they can handle whatever mom's milk throws at them. And so obviously you would allow these rats to, to breastfeed their young then? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, mom does the heavy lifting. Yes. So our rats are indeed breastfed by their mothers. And when we first created them, we actually learned how to hand rear rats because I thought we were going to have to do that. Um, and it turns out that I got lucky that rat breast milk is low in galactose. I did not know that when we first made the rats. I I learned that after the fact. And it was like, well, how come you're still alive? How is this possible? And then I start going through some really old literature. And there are papers you can find actually books that tell you like, you know, name any mammal you can think of, the whole zoo. You know, some, someone has looked at breast milk from every mammal you can think of, and some, some I didn't even know what they were. So the rats are indeed breastfed by their mothers, but I got lucky, and their mother's breast milk is mostly protein and fat and low in, low in carbohydrate. Maybe one of the things that illustrates how models are so complementary is the fact that the zebrafish, not being a mammal, <laughs> has no, no milk. And interestingly, they just do not get any exogenous galactose normally. 
still they show impaired fertility, among others. And I think that that's really interesting. I, I think it's a testament to the importance of endogenous production. Exactly. Right? We have human beings who were suspected of having glycosemia either because maybe they had a family history of it or something like that. They never saw a drop of milk. They went on soy formula from the minute they were born. Sometimes even the pregnant mother didn't drink milk just in case it would somehow cross the placenta. And those children and now adults are subject to exactly the same long-term complications as their counterparts who did have transient galactose exposure. So endogenous production, it's a major thing. For some, some reason, I never thought about the fact that, of course, the zebrafish does not drink milk. Um, <laughs> it just hasn't, hasn't crossed my mind at all. This is, this is an animal that is not naturally milk drinking. Um, I presume you reared them in milk. And, um, <laughs> there are, there, Judy, it, it, it's always a pleasure to hear you talk about things. It, again, sounds very exciting. Are there any limitations to what you're doing at the moment? Oh, of course. <laughs> yes, there are always limitations. So I think one of the obvious ones is we're working in rats and rats are not people. So there are some ways that rats recapitulate very well what goes on in humans and there are other ways where either they don't or we haven't tested it yet so we don't know. And so I think at this point there are many questions that we have not yet answered that we're working very hard to, to try to answer now. So we don't really know, for instance, exactly where GALT needs to be replaced. Do we need to get it to every cell? You know, if we just fix the liver, will that protect the whole body? So that's something that we're actively doing now. Do we need to get it into every cell? So one of the questions in pathophysiology of galactosemia is how much is cell autonomous? In other words, I'm a cell I make galactose. My neighboring cells also make galactose. If we get GALT restoration, either through mRNA or through a virus or through, I don't know, CRISPR-Cas9 gene correction, through something, if you correct some of the cells, but not all the cells, and you're almost never going to correct all the cells, then if I'm a cell over here and my neighbor got corrected, but I didn't, so I'm still making galactose. How many cells do we need to correct in the given tissue in order to either prevent or ameliorate whatever complications that tissue would otherwise experience. So that's another thing I, I worry about a lot and I'm trying to, to come up with ways around. So from our work in rats, we, we kind of keep getting hit with this in the face over and over again, because if you look at the different metabolites, we look at galactose, which can cross the cell membranes. So what we see is that if we know about how many cells we've corrected, because we we can do immunohistochemistry and count the brown cells, um, neighbors correct each other. <laughs> so if, if you have a metabolite that can go across the membrane, getting some cells really protects the whole neighborhood. Galactitol also, but not quite as good as galactose. Gal1P, uh-uh-uh, it ain't going to work because Gal1P is a strictly intracellular. It is highly charged. It does not get back out across the membrane. And so while having some cells that are expressing GALT can help the whole organism by, for instance, scrubbing the blood and, and so on, the fact that you're a cell who can metabolize galactose does not necessarily help me as a cell get rid of my GAL1P because my GAL1P is not going back out into the bloodstream. It's stuck inside my cell membranes and, and I need to cope with it myself. So the whole issue of cell autonomous and what fraction of brain cells, what fraction of liver cells we need to hit, that's still a big question. 
And it's going to take a lot of work to answer that question, but we're on it. <laughs> so, so I hope I hope in the future we'll have more answers. Right now we have some answers and a lot of questions. And maybe if I can add to that, that also the number of cells, but also which cells in a specific organ need to be targeted. That's also very important and something that we need to work on. Yeah. You need in a, in a brain, you need, exactly. you need to hit the glia, you need to hit the neurons, like, you know, who do you need to hit? Um, and, yeah. and that's another unknown at this point. And maybe which regions do we need to primarily direct? So there are, there are many questions on the road. Yeah. From a targeting point of view, is it easier to target gene therapy or mRNA therapy? So yeah, Estella, I don't really, I'm, I'm sure there is something in the packaging of the RNA. Like I, I read in your paper, something about the LDL receptor, I guess, is instrumental in, in cells taking it up. So I don't know if you can play uh, with that, you know? Yeah, you definitely can. So the package will help you direct the delivery to the specific cell you are aiming to. So if I would want to have the messenger RNA, not only in the liver, but in other cells, then you need to look for a vehicle, a nanoparticle that is targeting those cells. So that's also something to work on, depending on where do I want to deliver the product. Yeah. So another aspect of that, if you're doing intravenous injection, you have to ask not only how does whatever it is that I'm injecting, whether it's packaged RNA or packaged virus, how does it get from the bloodstream where I put it to where I want it to go? So it, it needs to be able to get out of the bloodstream and it needs to be able to get into whatever tissue or whatever cells you want. But the actual perfusion, like how much blood is going to whatever tissue you're talking about. So if you inject something intravenously, in general, almost no matter how you're trying to target it, a lot of it ends up in the liver, yeah. unless you take Absolutely. great steps to try to prevent that, just because the liver is a very well-perfused organ. Um, so some of it goes other places. So it's, it's both how well-perfused the tissue is um, and, and also whatever mechanism is required for getting the particle, virus, mRNA, whatever, from the blood into the, the cells. There's usually a receptor or something in, involved there. Yeah. We have also been thinking of local delivery just because of this reason. So if you specifically know, okay, that's the organ I would like to target, then we have been thinking, should we just deliver directly to the organ so that we, you don't have everything going to the liver, for instance. But those are things that we need to, to work on. And I suppose the other thing, if you're looking at these different sites, when are we actually going to need to treat these children? Because we've talked about these diet-independent complications of disease. There's always been people who speculated that that's because of the initial insult pre-treatment. But as Judy has said, you've got people who we knew the whole way through they had galactosemia or they've been on soy since birth. We know with your zebrafish, they never have been fed galactose and yet they still have complications. When are we going to have to treat? We can't treat humans when they're a single cell in a, in a plate. Um, I think that if we could answer that question 
we could be up for the for a very big prize <laughs> because I think that's a long-standing question and um, it's difficult to answer. But I think that we have evidence that a lot of it happens at the beginning. But that doesn't mean that you cannot do anything, probably. But I think early intervention probably is needed. But I don't know, Judy, it's difficult. It's a difficult question. Um, I, I think that there are two parts to this question that I, I want to sort of uncouple a little bit. So one, one question is, if we know that this baby is going to be born, they're going to have classic galactosemia, what is the best time to try to intervene? From everything I know about development and from work in other metabolic diseases, I think the answer is the sooner the better because the brain is developing rapidly. I mean, while obviously there's a lot of development that happens in utero, there is a lot of development that also happens um, after birth. And if you follow the hypothesis or whatever that any day without GALT is a bad day, then you want to minimize days without GALT. Um, so the, the sooner the better. But the other part of the question is, are any of the problems reversible. So, so we're asking, can we prevent problems and, and can we reverse or ameliorate or at least minimize problems? And at this point, I think from the work of many teams, it looks like we can at least minimize, if not prevent some problems. And we haven't tested all the problems. And, and so we're only at the tip of the iceberg there, but it looks like we can have some correction if we start really early. We have not yet tested, you know, what if we start late? And so that's that's one of the things that we're actually also trying to figure out because there are a lot of people walking around who have classic galactosemia and we would love to be able to help. And we don't know exactly when the damage is done and what's reversible and what's not reversible. We, we know that even in utero, certainly metabolites are abnormal. And, and so although the baby is born looking perfectly normal or, you know, maybe a little jaundice or something, but we know that they developed in an environment where some metabolites were atypical. But we also know that the brain is an incredibly plastic organ and it is really not done developing at birth. And so if you can intervene very early, I really do think that you can make a heck of a difference. Whether we could intervene in an adult or in an older child, that is something that's going to have to be tested. And obviously, we're going to test it in model systems that have their own pros and cons. So I hope we'll be able to tell you more in the future. Right now, all we can do is wave our hands a little bit. Well, that's perfect. And if there is a, a prize to be won for uh, sorting all this out, then I hope that you two get it. <laughs> um, I think really, so all the patients allowed for me end up being winners um it's, it's wonderful to talk to you again judy it's been lovely to meet you estella both of you your enthusiasm for this condition really just kind of leaks out over zoom so it's wonderful um if you'd like to read these papers please uh, click the link in the podcast description or go to the journal web pages and search for uh, galactosemia gene therapy or galactosemia mrna therapy and if you'd like to hear more from us including judy's first podcast on galactosemia please search for jmd podcast wherever you like to listen uh, judy and estella thank you so much for your time thank you james this has really been fun yeah thank you and thank you for listening until next time goodbye Thank you.